Peace of Christ be with you. As we settle into this place, I invite you to give yourself about three deep breaths that you might become fully present here and open to the reality of the Spirit in our midst, all around us, deep within us and among us. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, can you stand or sit and join me in the call to worship, please? Carry your losses here. We offer them in hope of being found. Offer your tears as a worthy gift. We trust they will be received with tenderness. Trust that nothing true is ever truly lost. We walk in mystery and
be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Westminster. It is good to be here with you. If this is your very first Sunday with us, a special welcome to you. I invite everyone after worship out to our patio area. We've got coffee and tea out there. We've got some snacks out there. Also out there, you'll find other people to converse with. Maybe find someone you don't know. Uh, get to know each other just a little better. Uh, during our offering time, those of you sitting here in the middle, I invite you to take that pew register and sign your name on it. Pass it down the aisle, pass it back. If you're visiting with us or new with us, if you want to put some of your contact information there, that's a great way for us to be in touch with you later in the week, answer any of your questions. So let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. Giving God, we are surrounded by so much bounty and beauty. We give you thanks and acknowledge how we sometimes fail to appreciate what is. We are also surrounded by pain and loss. We grieve and acknowledge how sometimes we fail to grieve. Take what we're carrying as a holy offering. Purify it with your love and renew us with your spirit. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that God's mercy extends beyond the bounds of even our collective imagination. Know that God's love penetrates whatever walls we may build. So know that in Christ you are forgiven. You are set free. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, having prayed our community prayer in one voice, now is the opportunity for you all to share the joys and concerns that are in your hearts and minds today. So if you have something that you would like to, us to be in prayer about or in prayer for, just raise your hand and let us know. Yes, Charlotte. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. So Charlotte is sharing with us that her 99-year-old uncle died last night. Um, joy that she was able to be with him just a couple months ago. And realizing that he reached the end of sounds like a very long life, well-lived. And also, we grieve that as well. So holding all of that, absolutely. Others? Yeah, Sherry. Prayers for healing and care. 
So Sherry and family have had friends visiting from Spain, and their older son, Alex, injured his knee pretty badly on a trampoline, and now they're trying to weigh if they need to return home to Spain early so that Alex can get the care he needs at, at home. Others? Yeah, Christina. All right, so prayers for friend Sandra and her husband Mark. Mark had a mini stroke and has a hole in his heart, it sounds like, has surgery. Sounds like he's going to be okay, but certainly prayers for him as he approaches surgery. Yeah. Others? Yeah. Lyndon. What did you say his name was Henry? Henry? So Lyndon offers prayers for Henry, a friend, also her doctor, sounds like a while ago maybe, um, who is now facing a mass in his stomach. Um, and just noting how interesting it is for the doctor to now be the patient. So prayers for him, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, Jennifer. So Jennifer had, had two deaths of folks close to her this week, your cousin, and then the husband of a friend of yours from college, the husband had had early onset dementia. And you also lifted up, I heard, um, just your friend caring for her husband and his dementia. And I know that's something that many of you have experienced or are experiencing, so holding that in prayer, definitely. Ruthie? Uh, gratitude for all the prayers of support and office of support for Clark as he's yeah. healing. Search for an answer for what's causing his trouble and looking forward to having an electric assisted bicycle. Oh. As transportation. <laughs> so if you were here last week, you heard that Clark's been having some currently unexplained health issues and um, also had injured his shoulder. So prayers for his healing for his shoulder, answers for his health issues, and he's not able to drive for a while. So it sounds like he's going to be getting an electric bike. So prayers for that as well. Yeah, Vince. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. So I was actually, I was recruiting him to sing with Michael, and he was out of town this weekend. So Vince is, uh, son Dominic, about to head off to college. So prayers for you and for him. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Judy. Mm -hmm. and I encourage 
Our hiking group had a beautiful hike this past Friday at Angel Island, and Judy was just lifting up the joy. It happens every second and fourth Friday in the morning. All welcome. Let's have just a few moments of quiet. We certainly gather every Sunday holding so much, right? So a few moments of quiet, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. So let us be in prayer. Gracious God, you are made known to us in the rustling wind that blows, in the fire that does not consume, in the face of the good, in the deep of the unknown, in your unconditional love. And we thank you for the ways that we meet you here today in worship, that we meet you every day of our lives. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer that your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, the glory forever. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite our musicians forward. And as they come forward, I just want to give a brief introduction to all the, all the folks that are playing with us today. So on keyboard, we've got Lauren over there. Lauren, who was born into this church. She's been here her whole life. Uh, fantastic pianist. I think you're just starting now to share your gifts with us in worship, and we're so grateful for that. Then on percussion back here, we've got Wyatt. A few years ago, there was a, we were having a youth-led service, and I was desperate for a young drummer, and I couldn't find one anywhere. So I asked my son's band teacher, do you know any drummers? And she said, you have to meet Wyatt. And that was many years ago, and we've played together a bunch since, so we thank you. And bass, we have Sophia. Sophia actually plays a multitude of instruments. She is the newest to Westminster, just started coming really since COVID. Uh, Sophia's mom joined our church just this past spring. This is your Westminster musical debut, I believe. So we're excited about that. And finally, on vocals, we have Michael. Michael also was born into this church. I think I've known Michael since he was about three years old. Now he's a college senior. Ah, it's so fun to be singing with you today. So such a joy to be here with these talented folks. And we're going to share a song called Reckless Love. Take 
children who are worshiping with us today to join me here at the front for our time of discovery. I love that we sang that song just now. Someone 
uh, had just asked me about that song and saying, I never thought of the word reckless with God. And I think the way God loves us is very reckless. I know I mess up all the time and that God would still love me is impressive. Well, I wonder something. Um, someday, you're going to have to get a job. Uh, you're going to have to move out of your house. You're going to have to pay your own bills. And you're going to have to talk about yourself so that you can get a good job. And we have all been through this. Well, almost all of us have been through this here. So I wonder what kinds of words you would use to describe yourself. So if I were to describe myself, I would say a father. I would say a husband. Um, I would say playful and silly. I would say not very smart sometimes. Say has good ideas other times. So I wonder if you were to describe yourself in a word or two, what, what kind of words would you use to describe yourself? What would you say? Oh, ask Liam. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, Rob, what, what kind of words would you use to describe yourself? Oh, and I put him on the spot here. Uh, so. Let's see. Uh, stunningly good looking. Yeah. Uh -huh. How much time do we have? He's lying about all this. He is. Yeah. What would you say? Would you say something about sports? Oh. Or would you say? Yeah, would you say something about school? Yeah, you like lacrosse? Okay, that's a great one. Would you say something about being funny? Or getting good laughs? And maybe even more, it's kind of weird, how do we come up with words to describe ourselves? It's kind of awkward, isn't it? Well, even more importantly, what kind of words would God use to describe itself? Um, would, made the world Yeah. Kind. Well, God actually uses some words to describe itself, and we're going to discover what some of those words are. So my friend Ben is in the back, and my friend Chris, we're going to follow them out to hear about some more words that God used to describe itself to us. Maybe lacrosse is one of them. I don't know, but we'll find out. So let's go find out what those words are. Go now and The scripture reading this morning is from Luke, chapter 7, 11 through 17. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to you. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nyon, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came toward to, forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. 
And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. This is holy wisdom, holy word. A couple of notes as we begin. If you were nervous by the uh, citation in the bulletin, know that Luke reading is not 175 verses long. <laughs> Jesus is not as long-winded as I'm about to be. And <clears throat> secondly, what Bethany is too humble to say, and, and the youth who played in the band are too humble to say, is that's the first time they've ever played together. So this week, Bethany rehearsed each of them individually, but separately. So that was liter that's both a testament to her dedication, but also to their abilities, musicians. So it's really really wonderful. I want to share a few quotes with you. Here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty is as close as breathing and is crying out to be born within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we all hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are, wiser than we know. We catch sight of it when at some moment of crisis a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. And whether we realize it or not, I think we are all homesick for it. These are all words of someone named Frederick Beekner. An ordained Presbyterian Minister, many know Beekner actually through his written words. He wrote 40 some books. And on August 15th, at the age of 96, Beekner left us. Died just a couple of weeks ago. And as you can imagine, since then, many who are impacted by his work and his words have been sharing reflections about him and about what he wrote. A colleague of mine, an old friend of Sherry's actually, 
shared a post recently that he was once invited to a dinner in North Carolina, and when he walked in, he was surprised to see that one of the other dinner guests was Frederick Buechner, who was humble and under, understated, kind, gentle. Here are a few more of his quotes. Turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is better than we ever dared hope. And that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, to be in love with that good news, is of all glad things in this world the gladdest thing of all. One of his more well-known quotes, a definition of sorts, is what he said about vocation. Maybe you've heard this before. This is what Beekner wrote of vocation. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's one to remember, where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. That's your vocation. Another one. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> they keep it awake and moving. It wasn't always so serious, right? But actually, one of Beekner's gifts was that he, he, he embraced doubt as part of the spiritual path. And in doing so, he gave a lot of people permission to feel okay about how they felt when they were honest. He found beauty in doubt, actually, faith without certainty. He said, if we are to believe that he, Christ, is really alive with all that implies, then we have to believe without proof. And of course, that is the only way it could be. If it could somehow be proved, then we would have no choice but to believe. We would lose our freedom not to believe. And in the very moment that we lost our freedom, we would cease to be human beings. Our love of God would have been forced upon us. And love that is forced is, of course, no love at all. Love must be freely given. Love must live in the freedom not to love. It must also take risks. Love must be prepared to suffer, even as Jesus on the cross suffered, and part of that suffering is doubt. Love must take risks. Buechner wrote a series of three short memoirs about his life. I have them. You're welcome to borrow them if you'd like. I've been looking over them since his death. You might assume that Buechner and others who give their life over to religious vocation was born into the faith, and it was fed to him as a child, and he nurtured it with every bite. But that's actually far from the truth with him and actually with many who pursue the life of faith as vocation. It was something he and many came to as they grew into adulthood. Quite unexplainably, he didn't grow up Presbyterian, he didn't even grow up Christian, but he was beckoned by this mysterious pull that he couldn't quite understand and couldn't quite resist. And just kept exploring and exploring and was more deeply pulled into it. He found himself at Union Seminary in New York City at the heyday of that seminary's life, when some of the best religious minds on the planet were gathered there on the faculty. Folks like the great Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, 
the, the dynamic teacher, professor of the Old Testament, James Muhlenberg. The public theologian who had the ear of at least one president, Reinhold Niebuhr. And the German theologian, Paul Tillich, who always spoke of God as the ground of our being, a definition that really resonated with many. And spoke memorably of how we see God most often just in glimpses. He would say, here and there, now and then. That's how we experience God, here and there, and now and then. When Beekner writes of his time at Union Seminary and sitting in those lecture halls, you can sort of feel his, his heart kind of ignite, catch on fire, and grow. And actually, in reading it, you might have this experience. I sort of did. Mine started to do the same thing, burn with this kind of energy. Because when your faith comes alive like that, something happens to you. It animates you. You want to make it live in the world the way Jesus made it live in the world. And Christ's ministry was bold and dynamic as well as hidden and understated at times. And it blew right through boundaries that tried to keep it in place. It knew no limits, no outer edges, ultimately. And so when you have that fire in you, you want to make what's alive in you live in the world. Living into the call for justice of the prophets. To pronounce that the kingdom of heaven is really here, right here and right now, and to do a little work to make it more so. To heal the sick and the hurting, even to raise the dead. It feels like you can do that when you're on fire. In that reading you heard from Luke moments ago, this is exactly what Jesus is up to. He finds himself at the gate. Notice when you read the scriptures how many interesting things happen in spaces, outside spaces, spaces between spaces, at gates, at the threshold of a, of a building or a house or on the roadway between two locations. That becomes a location of transformation in and of itself. Just watch that when you read. So there he finds himself outside the gate and they're carrying the body of a dead man only son to a widow. Now, those details had missed me on every prior reading till this time around. And I was reading a paper of a colleague of mine named Taylor Lewis Guthrie Hartman, the pastor in Georgia. She's really good at getting you into the gritty details of the stories and of Jesus's life and therefore your own life as well. And she pointed out, an only child. How does that layer on the grief? I have an only child. Changes it. A widow. Well, as I said, Hartman's very good at getting into kind of the grit of the gospel. And when she was talking about this passage uh, in, her, in her paper, reflecting on it, it drew her mind to an episode of NPR's StoryCorps. Maybe you're familiar with that series on public radio. Where she shared true stories about folks of some years back. The story it particularly sparked a memory for her about was, uh, was about a woman named Ruth Coker Burks. I don't know if that name is familiar to any of you. It was not familiar to me. 
Brooks tells her story of visiting a loved one in the hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, some years ago. It was the beginning of the AIDS crisis in this country. And you can remember, some of you, though not all of you, just what that felt like and just how scary it was on a number of levels and a number of directions. It so happened that that hospital was treating the first known patient of AIDS in Arkansas at the time. And for whatever reason, something drew Burks to go visit that room and visit that man. And when she walked in his room, she found him alone and crying out repeatedly for his mother. And so she went to the nurse's station to relay the request of the man. And the response from the nurses was, oh, honey, his mama's not coming. He's been here six weeks. Nobody's coming. You may remember why people stayed away from people with AIDS at that time, not just because of medical fear, but the kinds of people who contracted that disease first, folks in the LGBTQ community. And so, gay men, I guess, in particular. And so that nobody came and saw him. So Burks left the nurse's station and walked back to his room and sat down by him where she proceeded to stay for 13 hours until he drew his last breath, but not alone. The same reason his family would not come visit that man, they would not come and take his body. They didn't want it. So Brooks took it. She took his remains and buried them in her own family's cemetery. And Burks went on to care for a thousand AIDS patients, bearing 40 of them next to her kin. That's risky love. I don't mean the medical risk. It turns out medically that was not a risky thing to do. I'm not sure in the point of things whether that was known or not. But the, the most daring thing was the societal risk, the social risk, the stigma that went along with that, maybe particularly in that part of the country. I don't know at the time. I think that's the kind of love to which Christ calls us. That's exactly the kind of love that Jesus is up to in that passage. And it could be lost on us because we, understandably, would get so swept up in the notion that he raised somebody from the dead. Right? That's the... That's the punchline of the story, right? That's the main point. Well, maybe, maybe. That's probably why they called him a prophet. But they also called him a prophet because of something else he did that was prophetic and challenging and risky. Anybody catch it? And I wouldn't expect you to. He touched the beer, the platform on which they carried the dead body. Now, to us, that just sounds like ancient stage directions in the drama, right? He went here, he did this, he touched that, he, he raised the man from the dead. But in Jewish culture, the purity laws were such that to touch that was to defile himself, to make himself ritually unclean. Bodies, things that touch bodies, made you ritually unclean. 
It's intentional in that story that that detail is included because it shows that Jesus would intentionally take that, make that transgression on the way to that expression of love. Wow. It's that risky love that Jesus embodies and calls us to. I titled the sermon Risky Love because I think in many ways that's what Jesus' ministry was about. Now, we can get that wrong. We see plenty of risk, risky activity all the time that isn't grounded in a, a love for someone else. It might even be grounded in a selfishness or a carelessness. It doesn't bear any fruit in the world, but we're talking about the kind of risk-taking that has a meaningful impact on others' lives and the community around that bears fruit in the world. And a love that isn't just simply romantic. Sometimes we, we hear this and we think, yes, I need to go pursue my former lover. I mean, maybe, but... This love is bigger than that, right? Kind of love that can meaningfully have an impact on someone. Hartman says, this pastor that I quoted earlier, she asks us, what would it look like for the church to make risky love its calling card? Its vocation. Risking itself for the world. She points to what has become my favorite line in the Presbyterian Book of Order, not that there are, you know, many competing for that. It's, it's a constitution, for goodness sake. But there's a lovely section at the beginning of the theological foundations of our tradition. And one of them says this, the church is called to be a community of faith entrusting itself to God alone, even at the risk of losing its own life. The church doesn't exist to exist or even to grow necessarily or to get bigger or to go on forever. The church exists to risk itself for the love that we see embodied and modeled in Jesus Christ and empowered in Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Now, we don't know what happened to that man that Jesus raised from the dead. I don't believe a story gets told elsewhere in Scripture. But we know one thing, and you all know it, whether you, don't, whether you know or you know it or not. <laughs> Eventually he died. Now why would you bring that up? You were doing so well. We were feeling good. We were sort of feeling like we were fired up to do something. That's an important part of the story. One, because it's true, and two, because it reveals something that we need to know. Otherwise, faith can be a setup. If you think that faith will just empower you to do whatever you want to do and overcome anything that's before you or anyone that seems to oppose you, and it'll, it'll all work and it'll all, always work and it'll forever work, then what happens is when some reality comes crashing in, something that counters that narrative, the whole structure will come apart and will crumble, will go up in smoke. The faith has to be built on something more than that. A trust that's deeper, less concrete perhaps, than just exactly what the outcome looks like in the perpetuity of the outcome. Another way of thinking about it is if your faith is that fire, if it's, if it's like a candle you're holding. If you don't ever stop to consider 
the potential for the wind coming along. You're just destined to have it put out and snuffed. And then what will you have left? So it's got to be more than just that fire. One of the gifts that Frederick Buechner gave to those who were moved by his writings about faith was that he was not all fire in the belly. He was well acquainted with the cold wind and understood both as the life of faith, the, the triumphs and the failures, all of it, the certainty or the moments of it and the doubt, all of it. He tells a story of when he was at Union and part of his field work was to work in an employment clinic in East Harlem. And he overcame a good bit of imposter syndrome as a, as a white young guy in his 20s, not sure of what he was doing, not sure if he belonged or if he had anything to offer. But along the way, he managed to get a few people decent jobs, including a man named Fred, same name, Fred. Fred was not an uneducated man. He had actually studied Greek, but his addiction to alcohol had ruined his life. He'd long struggled with addiction and had lost everything, and just by the look of his face, you could tell life had been really hard on him. But Beekner was able to get this Fred a job. It happened to be on the security staff of Union Seminary. So once he got him the job, they sort of lost touch. Their official reason for being together had been completed. Until sometime later, he met him on a windy street corner in the city, 120th and Broadway, if you know New York. So windy that Fred stood across the street from holding his hat to his head, lest the wind blow it away. And as Beekner's eyes met with Fred, he had a sudden but certain realization that he would never see him again. He didn't know why, but he was clear I would never see him again, and it turns out he was right. Now, what happened to Fred? Did he continue to hold to his sobriety and exceed uh, performance at his job, maybe move on to something else, maybe even something better by some standard or another? Was he able to build or rebuild his family and live happily ever after? Did he fall right off the wagon? and lose it all again, and live for not much longer? Or do you have some mixture of, of winning and, and losing, of going forward and going backward, and maybe going sideways all at the same time, like so many of us do? It's an incomplete story. And I think what Beekner realizes and offers to us is that that has to be enough. That you can't base your faith just on the outward successes by easy measures. That so much of what we do, the outcome of which we will never experience or fully understand or appreciate. I do funerals here all the time and people realize things about the person that nobody else knew over and over and over again. There's so much that we do that we don't see the outcome of. We just get glimpses of the kingdom showing up, of God, of miracles, of it all having meaning and making sense, just glimpses. And I think Beekner would teach us that has to be enough, lest our flame get doused too easily. This is how he wrote about that encounter with Fred. 
I can see him standing there. As in some way he is standing there still, and I also am standing there still. He is alone in making the best of it with his thin church rummage overcoat flapping around his legs. His one free hand is raised in the air to wave goodbye. It was the last time. And Beekner, in reflection, turns to one of those professors that lit the spark in him so long ago, Paul Tillich. Here and there in the world, now and then in ourselves, Tillich said, there's a new creation. This side of glory, reflects Beekner, maybe that's the best we can hope for. Here and there, now and then, it's worth risking for. Amen. i 
face of sin and shame. You see a child who needs your grace. You run to meet me on the broken road. And in your arms I know I'm home. be seated. As always, we remind you to keep apprised of what's happening in the life of this church through the announcements that are in the bulletin, through the e-news that comes out each week, and if you're not receiving that, let us know so you can receive that, as well as the website and our more periodic paper newsletter. I do want to highlight a, a few things here. On September 11th, it will be our annual in-gathering. That's kind of our kickoff to the kind of the academic year, for lack of a better term. So we hope that you come, and after the 10 o'clock service, we'll have a big meal, uh, probably both in Finley Hall and spilling out into the outside, so you can eat whichever place uh, fits you right now. So I hope you can make it there. Uh, Congregational Life has really been working hard on that, so please come and enjoy that time together. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, and we're trying to build it into the routine that as you think about coming, we have communion always on the first Sunday of the month, as you think about coming to the Lord's table, you think about what you might bring as an offering. And in particular, we collect diapers for those less fortunate. Uh, we know how expensive those are, and so you can just kind of make it a habit in your mental calendar. Whenever you come on the first Sunday, bring diapers. You can actually do that any Sunday and any day throughout the week, quite frankly, but we try to highlight it that week so it becomes a habit. 
It's uh, time, if you haven't already, to sign up for, uh, there's a women's retreat happening. There's a paper sign-up sheet in the Narthex. This is for a retreat in October on the 14th and 15th. But also in the e-news, there was an, a link, link to an electronic sign-up, so you could sign up there. That's just a smattering of what's happening. Please find ways that you can plug in, that your faith might be enriched, that you might be a blessing to your neighbor, and that you might serve the church in wider community. And with that, our closing hymn is number 700. It's on. It's on. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, I can hear you right here. Huh? I can hear you coming out of this. Okay. <laughs> I'm not making it up. All right. I'll speak loudly. I'm going to encourage you to not be wedded to your hymnal. <laughs> because, um, I don't think I'm on. It was on. I can hear it coming right out of here. <laughs> Are you calling me a liar? I'm going to borrow Michael's microphone. Um, so, the words are super easy. I'm going to live so God can use me anywhere. What are the words? Anytime. I'm going to live so God can Technical difficulties today. I'm going to live so God can use me anywhere, anytime. And then we just change that one word, live, work, pray, sing. So you don't probably even need your hymnals. So, stand Standing or sitting, let's sing together. Here we go. I'm gonna leave so